1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is neuroscientist Adrian Owen, Ph.D., author of Into the Gray Zone, A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death. End-of-life care decisions are incredibly difficult if dying patients are unable to express their own wishes. Dr. Adrian Owen argues that patients thought to be non-responsive or in a vegetative state, often are victims of traumatic brain injuries, strokes, or degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, are actually vibrantly alive. Through pioneering techniques, he affirms that these patients are conscious and in many cases are able to engage in a dialogue through a special MRI scan-facilitated language system. Uh, His research is featured in many journals, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New England Journal of Medicine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Owen.
2: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on.
1: It's exciting research. There's no question about that. Uh, let's just talk about just basically what you what you've done, what you're doing, and the implication for this kind of research. So these patients who we think are in a vegetative state and we treat them obviously as if they are in a, I guess not res- not able to respond, not feeling anything. Um, but and so we make choices for their care based on this, and you're saying, hey, this is not necessarily the case. patients that yeah that we consider what- not,
2: yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, that, that's really the story that's at the heart of the book. It uh, begins 20 years ago when really none of us thought that any of these patients had any sort of internal life at all. The assumption has always been that these these patients are awake but unaware. And by that, I'm referring to the fact that they, they open their eyes. They'll sometimes look around the room. They might grunt and groan. They, they fall asleep. They have sleep and wake cycles. So, that this is the problem that in many ways they look as though there is something there, but they won't respond to any form of external stimulation. So if you ask them to squeeze your hand, they won't do it, or to look this way or blink their eyes. They'll never produce any responses. And this historically has been why they've been assumed to be unaware. And I sort of opened the book with a little bit about that. And then uh, I show that 20 years ago, or I described the case 20 years ago, of a patient who came... Uh, who came to me who was in a vegetative state who, I, on a whim, uh, we just put her into a scanner. We put her into a brain scanner just to see what would happen. And, you know, again, at the time, I think many people thought we were mad. They thought this was a waste of money and a waste of time. But it turned out that in the scanner, her brain lit up much as yours or mine would when we showed her pictures of her friends and, and family. And that, that really started this story. And it's a story that unfolds, um, And we got more and more sophisticated through the late 90s and the early 2000s with the sorts of technology we had available to us. And we gradually started to find more and more patients who would respond in this way. Then we started to ask questions about what what does it mean? I mean, are they actually in there? Are they having experiences like like you and I? uh, yeah, about halfway through the book, I, I, um, uh, I, yeah, I talk about an experience that happened in 2006 where we first actually made contact with a patient. We found a patient who had supposedly been vegetative for, uh, that, at that point, five, five months. Uh, and it turned out that, in fact, she wasn't. She was conscious. She was, uh, she was aware. She was aware of where she was and who she was and the situation that she was, she was in. And this was the first time that any of us, I think, started to realize that uh, many of these patients aren't What they appear to be at all and it turns out now we know it's about one in five about 20 percent of patients who appear to be completely vegetative Uh, actually when you put them into a scanner you ask the right questions you uh, you you, you use the right technology it becomes very clear that many of them uh, have some awareness some of them have complete awareness and as i go on to describe (laughs) in the book i I want to stop you
1: there because if you're talking about patients who you uh, obviously have uh, you're saying over the years we thought that they were completely unaware in a vegetative state but now you're finding that they and in some cases i guess can actually are, are experiencing everything but they can't really communicate i mean how frustrating is that i mean what kind of a situation is a patient who is like being able to are you saying you know if if you, if you talk to this person that they do understand everything, they know what's happening and yet they're unable to communicate their own thoughts or that, I mean, how, I mean, let's talk about that because it would seem
2: to me that.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's certainly the case. I mean that particular patient 20 years ago went on to recover Uh, and I interviewed her for the book and and some of her comments are are there. And one of the things that she said that I I think is, is, is very profound is that, you know, It was enormously frustrating um, having this awareness that nobody knew about. Nobody knew that I was there. And the day that you scanned me, I I stopped being a body and became a person again. And I think that very much sort of sums up what many of these patients say: that it is tremendously frustrating, um, you know, being locked inside. And some, you know, some of these technologies, in in a sense, are providing us with a key uh, to 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 actually access these patients and access uh, some of their experiences.
1: So, are there differences, let's say, because we mentioned some of the things that can cause the, I mean, you know, car accidents, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, are there differences in in what you find in those people's, let's somebody who's in a car accident, for instance, or somebody who's suffering from a degenerative disease, let's say like Mm -hmm.
2: Alzheimer's, are they the same? Well, of course, what's happened to their brains is completely different. This is the interesting thing about conditions uh, the, the grey zone conditions that we're discussing here is that you can get into that situation for for many different reasons. So, you know, one day I'll see a a, a victim of a car accident who's had a so-called traumatic brain injury, a big, uh, you know, a, a, an impact to the to the head. Uh, The next day, it might be somebody who's been buried under an avalanche for 40 minutes and has suffered a a loss of oxygen to the brain. Now, the brain damage in those two cases might be entirely different. They may look very different on a standard clinical scan, but they may both end up somewhere in this gray zone, somewhere between complete awareness uh, and complete lack of awareness. And uh, as you say, there are many, many different conditions from strokes to uh, you know, to, to traumatic brain injuries, non-traumatic brain injuries, and, and conditions like Alzheimer's disease that can result in this, this very difficult situation where somebody may not be what they appear to be. We judge, we judge, in many cases, we judge on behavior, what somebody is able to do, what somebody is able to tell us. But what we've been showing is that in many cases, there's, there's more going on. And if you use the right technology, uh, you can access that and get a much better sense of what it's like to be that person.
1: So, in other words, if you 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 obviously have that technology, Is this and and does do most research centers, hospitals, places where patients are, do they have this technology so that they can access this information about the their particular about the patient's brain?
2: No, I would, I would say this is still something that is very much in the sort of research and, and scientific domain right now. Uh, it's not so much that the technical capabilities aren't available outside. We, we published a scientific paper two years ago showing that the sorts of things that we're doing, accessing patients, uh, communicating with patients, you can actually do uh, on, on an old, we, we, we tried to find the, the oldest and, and uh, the worst MRI magnet that we could in a local hospital and we demonstrated, in fact, you know, you can do it. But, to be fair, you know, that required a lot of PhDs, a lot of scientists, and a lot of experience to, to, to pull that off. It's not really ready for clinical prime time yet, but you know, these things will happen. I, I don't think it will be very long.
1: But I mean, it brings, obviously, there are just so many questions, like moral questions, ethical questions that come up when you have the ability to do this, or if you don't have the ability to do this, but you know, there is a possibility that this person is conscious conscious on some level, like the, the gray zone, as you're talking about. So what, what are the implications? Like, what are the ethical implications for something like this? You have a patient who's been in a car accident in the hospital. I mean, you know, the end of life issues, for instance, or... Um, those kinds of issues.
2: Yeah, so these are some of the themes that I, I really tried to dig into uh, when I was writing into the Grey Zone because I, w- I didn't want to write a science book uh, or a book for scientists. I wanted to, to write a book that would touch on uh, how these things affect real people and, and touch on themes that most of us have, you know, discussed over dinner or in the bar with with, with our friends. And end of life decision making is a, you know, is a is a really important one, as you, as you've said, and I'm sure. Everybody listening to this has either said or heard, if I ever end up in that condition, you know, please pull the plug. And one of the things that we are finding, which I I think will surprise a lot of people, is that actually when you get into that situation, that's not necessarily the attitude that you, you still have. And I mean, technically, we are at the point where this technology could be used to assist in end-of-life decision making um as you say there are enormous ethical challenges there and you know it's very difficult but technically it can be done um and I, you know, I think the, the, when it is, when it is used in that context, the, the answers are going to be surprising. The, 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 the best research that we have so far suggests that many of these patients are able to derive some satisfaction from their life. Uh, most of them don't in fact want to die, which is, you know, I think a surprise. I think most of us would, would consider this to be a fate worse than death, but actually, uh, you know, it turns out that that's not the case.
1: But I guess the patient themselves or the person themselves then would have the option to make the choice. Wouldn't that be the case? Whereas before, you-, you know, the hospital, the legal system, the family, everybody's trying to make a choice of the patient, if the person hasn't said anything, you know, before they got in this condition. But now they could make the choice. I don't want to live like
2: this. Um, you, you've absolutely touched on what we you know, what I what I consider to be the real heart of the book, which is, you know, can we return some of that difficult decision making to the patient themselves? Imagine a world and, I, you know, I've seen this countless times, the difficulties that families have in making decisions about their loved ones and they may be you know, relatively simple decisions like, am I going to enter this, uh, am I going to enter my uh, mother-child friend into this clinical trial for a new drug? But they may be really complicated decisions like, are we going to pull the plug? Are we going to allow uh, our loved one to die? And, you know, it's enormously difficult. Nobody wants to be in that situation. I certainly don't. About having to decide what it is that person might want in this situation. And I think if we could create a situation where at least some of these patients can contribute to the decision-making, making themselves and actually express their own wishes, then I think, you know, all, all of us will, will will sleep much better at night.
3: Talk
1: to us about exactly how you, well, first of all, you have your own personal story and I want to get into that as well, which I assume motivated you to get into this kind of research. But um, before we started the show, I, I mentioned a video that I had seen about how you first started uh, doing some of the experiments with patients who were considered to be in a vegetative state but asking them actually giving them directions to visualize certain things and then you were able to see the brain activity. Um, can we talk about some of the, of, of those kinds of, uh, of of examples?
2: We can yeah um, I mean this is the, the sort of central technology and actually it's it, it sounds very complicated it's actually, it's actually pretty simple now I wish I could say to you you know we can put a patient in the scanner and we can ask them to think a yes and think a no and we can decode what's going on in their brain and you know we know we know what's happening and unfortunately the technology isn't quite there yet but we can decode something so for example if if I if I ask you to imagine squeezing your hands or imagine moving, waving your arms around as though you were playing a vigorous game of tennis it will produce a very distinct pattern of brain activity in an area known as the premotor cortex. This, an area of your brain will light up and it's involved in imagining doing scenarios like moving your arms around. So it's then a relatively small step to say to a patient, well, you know, I- imagine playing tennis or imagine moving your arms around if you want to say yes and imagine doing something else. The other situation we often use is to get somebody to imagine walking through the rooms of their house because this, this produces a, a very different pattern of brain activity. So we could say, imagine doing that to say no. And, you know, it's, it sounds like science fiction, I know, but I've been doing this for 15 years now, and it's not science fiction. It's, it's the reality of the situation. Uh, most people can change their brain activity by imagining these different scenarios and can answer simple yes and no questions. In fact, they can answer complex yes and no questions, too. We had a, a patient a few years ago who was able to do complex math um, by, by answering yes, the answer is 17 or no, the answer is not 34. And this is a patient who was supposedly in a vegetative state, yet, when we asked him questions and asked him to just change the pattern of activity in his brain by doing these mental imagery tasks, as we call them, he was able to answer math questions.
1: So, then a whole new area of responsibility for those uh, people are medical. Uh, facilities or families or whomever are caring for the patient. Once you know that, once you know the person can respond that way, it's not just a matter of he or she making a choice about whether they want to live or die, but then it becomes how do they want to live their life. I mean, if you know this person can be do you know, math calculations, then don't you have to provide an entirely different kind oh. of environment? I mean, they can't just be lying in a bed and no one's talking to them. I mean, that, that would seem to me... Uh, a question, uh, a question of care. I mean, major care for for patients like this.
2: I think that's a really, a really great question, and actually, it's what we spend most of our time working on. I mean, the reason that I, I you know, I got into end-of-life decision making and the use of this technology in, in that context in the book is because that's the question everybody asks me uh, when they listen to me uh, speak or lecture on this. They'll say, "Well, could could you, uh, you know, could, could you use this to ask somebody whether they want to live or die?" And I know, you know, I know people think about that a lot, and they immediately sort of jump to that question. But that's actually not what we do most of the time, partly because I'm not sure that we know what we would do with the the answer to the question right now. So what we spend most of our time doing when we discover one of these patients is asking them questions that can improve their quality of life. So, for example, are you in pain is a question that we ask many of our patients because I think the only thing worse than being in a vegetative state or, or, or being trapped inside your body for 15 years is being trapped like that and, and being in pain and of course pain is something that we can deal with very effectively uh, now so we ask patients that we also ask patients what type of music they'd like to listen to it's a, it's a fact that most of these patients especially those that go on for uh, day, that, that remain in this state for, for some decades um, they will be exposed to a lot of whatever it is they used to uh, enjoy listening to or watching if you used to Uh, like watching basketball, and you end up in a vegetative state, you're going to get to watch a lot of basketball afterwards. Maybe you don't like basketball anymore. Maybe, you know, that's the worst thing in the world for you right now. And so questions about what patients would like to experience, how they would like to spend their time, uh, what they would like to listen to, the sorts of music they'd like to listen to. I think these are the really important questions right now. You know, in the absence of a therapy, we don't have a way of curing these patients, uh, but we do have a way uh, of improving their quality of life.
1: When you talk about improving quality of life, what's the difference between, say, if you have a child, I mean, because it, uh, let's assume that a child before or whatever has happened to them uh, have a growing brain as opposed to someone who's older and aging. I mean, are there differences? Are there differences in the brain, differences like, in, you know, ch- uh, children or teenagers as opposed to like somebody in their 50s, 60s or 70s um, and differences in how you would treat them?
2: Oh, for sure I mean the main difference is in the likelihood of recovery to be honest uh, I mean we see um, we see children who uh, you, know, un- you know unfortunately find themselves um, in one of these gray zone states and of course we see uh, many elderly people people have either had you know, strokes or uh, the late stage alzheimer's disease or a condition like a l s can actually put you uh, you know right into one of these situations and you know across the lifespan. I would say that the chances of recovery are are very much better if the patient is younger. Uh, And that's partly because of you know what we now know of as brain plasticity, that as the brain is growing in the early years, the brain is far more capable of reorganizing itself so that when functions are lost, uh, when there's damage to a particular area, other areas that aren't damaged can take on the responsibilities uh, of the areas that are, are no longer functional. And that's something that's much harder for an older Brain to do, and that's that's an area that we're really interested in exploring right now uh, by by scanning even even babies you know as young as as neonates newborns uh, you know to find out whether we can understand more about this plasticity in order in order to 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 help uh, for example babies that have uh, suffered traumatic brain or suffered uh, brain injuries during birth I think that's another very important issue.
1: So it it seems to me that I mean were you you're on the cutting edge of all of this. I mean, how much do we really know about the brain? It sounds like we don't really know too much. I mean, there's so much out there um, or in there to uh, explore that we don't know about in terms of the capacity. You're talking about plasticity. Um, it's almost, it's, it's like a, it's an, a whole new field, I guess. Is it? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm asking the question. Yeah.
2: It's interesting. I mean, at the, at the end of the book, I, I, I make this comment. I, I try to get, get reflective, and I say, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I sit here, and I, I, I can't possibly imagine what science is going to be capable of uh, 20 years from now. It's just so far beyond what I can possibly imagine. Yet, when I look back, and I've been you know, working in this field for t- more than 20 years now, I also can't believe how far we've come. So, although you're right... Uh, you know in some ways, our understanding of the brain and of brain disorders is in its infancy. If you look back over the last twenty years in that window that really um what we now call cognitive neuroscience has emerged, these these sophisticated brain scanning techniques have become much more widely available and and, and, and deployed in, in various domains. We've made enormous strides. I mean, we're in an absolutely uh, different place. And, you know, the simple example is, you know, what's happened with our understanding of a condition like the vegetative state? 20 years ago, this wasn't a condition that people even thought about because these patients were written off as being, you know, entirely unaware, entirely uh, not not worthy of even even our, our consideration. Yet now it's it's very widely agreed that many of these patients do have some awareness. They do live lives, albeit lives confined to a, a hospital bed or a, a bed at home, uh, and they are they are people. And you know, I, I, we know a lot more about the sort of brain damage that causes these conditions. And that's the only way we're ever going. To move in the direction of finding therapies or finding ways of bringing these people out is to thoroughly understand the condition, and that's you know we've we made it we've made enormous strides despite the fact I I, I completely agree with you uh, so much is still unknown about the brain.
1: Yeah, because we make it we've made enormous strides. Let's say just in the physical. You talk about rehabilitation. Usually, it ha- doesn't have to do with your brain. It has to do with your body. You know, well, getting people to walk again, or uh, but so. You kind of—I'm sort of picturing that sounds like a—it doesn't sound like—I don't know what it sounds like—but I'm thinking about you're going to be able to kind of rehabilitate people in brain-wise, but then they're going to not have a body that functions. Is it going to be a disconnect?
2: I, I don't think so because you know we are our brains uh, and again this is that's a, that's a comment that i make many times um in, you know, in the book which is that you know everything i, I mean i think uh, take sleep for example uh, you know we're doing a huge study right now on uh, the effects of sleep deprivation and you know many people think of sleep deprivation or you know just not getting a good night's sleep as having an effect on your body but actually it's your brain that's the problem it's the effect on your brain your brain drives everything the, 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 your brain makes sense it of all the signals coming in from your body and your your brain drives all the things going out of your body. I think, you know, many people still don't realize that how, you know, how whether your heart keeps beating or not is something that is largely dictated by your brain. Whether your lungs keep breathing is there's a part of the brain called the brain stem that keeps that all those systems driving along. So the brain is absolutely at the core of of who we are and and rehabilitation example you use is a great one that you know when when a stroke patient learns to use their arm again it's not the arm that's changing it's not the arm that's getting fixed it's the brain it's the brain and it's how movements uh, are are mapped in the brain uh, and how the connections between the brain uh, and the arm uh, communicate
1: let's get because we don't we have a few minutes left. And I just want to get back to your own story too, because uh, obviously this is your personal story of uh, sort of what drove you, I guess, in the early years to get into this type of research. So um, having to do with with your own uh, partner who was uh, considered to be in a vegetative state.
2: Yeah, this is how um, this is how I, I opened the book. That um, I'd, at that point I'd, I'd had a lot of training in uh, you know in neuroscience, in brain imaging, and in psychology, and and I, I, you know, I was publishing a lot of scientific papers, doing a lot of work on disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And I, I think I hadn't, in a way, I hadn't really found my calling. I didn't really know what what it was all for. And then I had an ex partner who had a brain aneurysm. Uh, 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 one of the arteries in her brain ruptured. Uh, and she very quickly uh, was declared to be in a vegetative state. And somehow, you know, all the dots in my life became connected. And, and I sort of realized that, you know, maybe there was something that we could do here. Maybe we could use all this technology, use all the science, use what we were learning about the brain to ask a question about what that condition must be like. What what, what was her situation? What, what, you know, what was it like to be her? Did she have any residual understanding? Did she know where she was? Did she know what had happened to her? And that um she crops up through, throughout the book because you know she came back into my life uh, you know many times over the the course of the 20 years that the the story in the book is told and um you yeah, know yeah, I think in many ways she's been the person who who sort of framed the the scientific questions that I asked along the way um wondering you know what 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 it was like to be her
1: so, tell us, just so you don't have to tell us the whole thing, we want people to go out and get the book, maybe, um, but uh, we do, but let's, you know, what was her reaction, her responses, some of them?
2: Um well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to spoil the end of the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But you know, as you know, she bookends the book. She st- she opens the book and, and she, she 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 ends the book. And uh, all I'll say is, um, you know, we we got ourselves into a position where we were able to apply some of this amazing technology to this uh, you know this ex this ex partner of mine. And you know, I, I describe it in, in some detail in the book because you know, I I can't I, I really. I hope I have in the book, but you know on on the line here i, I can 't put into words how how weird that situation is to to actually peer into the brain of somebody that you know you once had a, a loving relationship with you once shared experiences with, and to look for signs of the person that they once were or or to, to look to see whether that person is still in there i mean it, it is an amazing experience and, and, and it's one of the great gifts that i've received as as a scientist being able to apply some of the amazing you know technologies and facilities and 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 techniques that i have available to me here uh to a very personal situation to try and answer i think what's a you know a really fundamental question is you know what's happened to this person that was part of my life um we know it was it was was a truly a truly compelling and and emotional experience
1: yeah it's really a unique experience i mean here's intimate with and then you're exploring them in this re- scientific way. I mean, usually you're dealing or working with people that you don't know, right? I mean, they're their patients oh. or yeah.
2: Of so. course, yeah. I mean, uh, most of the patients that we see, we you know, we end up making some kind of relationship with because we spend a lot of time with them and we, you know, we really in a way we you know, we get kind of intimate with them and their you know, their families because we have to learn a lot about them. But to do it the other way around to have somebody that you've you've lived with and you you know, you've purchased a house with and you've uh, you know, you've experienced uh, many of life experiences with to, to then have them in that situation and, and try and work out, try and work out whether they were, they're still there or not. It was a kind of a weird collision of, of everything of many different aspects, aspects of my life. And I hope, I hope it makes for an interesting story.
1: Yeah, Well, it does make for an interesting story, and so uh, I want to mention the book again, Into the Gray Zone, A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death, and we've been talking to the author, Adrian Owen, Ph.D., um, thanks so much for being on the show today. Can you give me the website and, um, that we can go to to find out more information about you and your book?
2: Absolutely. Yep. I mean, people should just go to intothegrayzone.com. Uh, that'll tell you lots about the book. It also has some videos on there of some of the patients, uh, videos of us scanning patients. It'll, it'll give people a little bit of a better idea of how the technology works and some of the themes that I touch on in the book. So, intothegrayzone.com is probably the easiest place for people to go to.
1: Great. Dr. Adrian Owen, thanks so much for being on the show.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Phenomenon. (laughs) All right, never mind. (laughs) That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: So with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zuckert Show. Joining me this morning is marriage and family therapist Michelle Dean, author of Saving America's Grace: Rethinking Family Values, Moral Politics, and the Cultural War what does today's political culture say about our morals and values marriage and family therapist michelle dean explores how the election of donald trump is affecting our society families and children saving america's grace is about rebuilding a national character that inspires leads and creates a new american culture that is strong compassionate and plays by the rules she brings 30 years of experience to the table Driving to find a common ground in our deeply divided political system. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Michelle.
3: Well, thank you for having me, Catherine. My my pleasure. Well, okay. So I I
1: guess uh, just in the opening, uh, describing uh, what you're doing and 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 your book, um, you got a big daunting task, I guess. Uh, we are definitely <laughs> in a cultural divide. We seem angrier and. More violent and divided than ever before. I mean, you're relating this to Donald Trump. I think it's something that's also just sort of been evolving, unfortunately. Uh, yes. So,
3: yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I actually want to make that point. Is I don't believe quote Donald Trump is the problem. <laughs> um, I think he's a symptom of a culture that's gone awry, and. What I've said, you know, I've been on a lot of radio interviews, both conservative and and more liberal. And what I've said all along is that the problem with the breakdown of uh, character in politics has existed a long time before the election of Donald Trump. And what I give him credit for is kind of what you see is what you get, <laughs> where there's been a lot of problem with. Uh, you know, moral character in politics for so long, but it tends to be more subversive under the table, backdoor politics, you know, money influencing decisions, that type of thing that isn't quite so obvious. Um, So I just want to put that out there. And I, I do believe that we can't just be focusing on, quote, resisting Donald Trump, that if we want to change our culture, we have to get back to what is it that we are for? What are we fighting for as opposed to what we're fighting against? Yeah, I think so, Michelle, that's, that's, what an excellent,
1: yeah, that's an excellent point because I, I, mean, I just want to respond to actually two of the things you said. One of them I've, I've always said, and I, I'm the liberal show that you're on. I have to say that. But uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Uh, is uh, he was there were no surprises, it, you know. It, he was who he was all along. It was really exactly. us or the media saying that oh, somebody he's going to change. Well, seventy-one-year-old men don't change, and he wasn't trying to really hide anything. So you're right. What you see is what you get. When I knew I was going to interview you for the show next, uh, sort of comment mm-hmm. is that I went back and um, I was going through some of the presidents and and listening to some of the early presidents like in the 20s and 30s and all of the ah. teapot dome syndrome uh, 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 scandal and and warren harding it was supposed to be one of the worst presidents ever who had girlfriends and and illegitimate children and but most of it was kept hush hush those kinds of things so you know this whole thing mm-hmm. about getting, getting back to necessarily particularly in politics uh moral values
3: uh, i'm not sure what we're getting back to or we <laughs> uh-huh. so but right. yeah. Well, one thing is uh, that I learned through, you know, my background is in human development and family relations. It's it's not politics. But what I've tried to do is look at politics from the angle of moral character. And one thing that I learned was that the founders of our country knew that in order to have a functioning democracy, something that they called virtue was critical, in order to be a self-governing society, we needed to have this, what the Greek and Roman political philosophers called civic virtue, we needed to have a sense of doing right by others. Because you can't self-govern if you don't have that basic kind of moral navigation system. You know, democracy is about the common good, and how do we govern with that in mind? It takes somebody that has moral character, to not, you know, put self-serving interests or the interests of those who are uh, supporting you financially ahead of others. So there's always been this need, and you know as well as I, that America has always been striving to kind of reach this ideal. We didn't start out, certainly with moral character, even back in the early days of our country. Uh, you know, with slavery and so forth, we've always kind of been trying to strive for this sense of uh, freedom, equality, and the common good. And we just have to keep moving in that direction where we're becoming better and better uh, as opposed to worse and worse. (laughs) Yeah. So how do we do that? I know you say we
1: have to, you're a marriage and family therapist. You really do have to start with Uh the family, right? You have to
3: start with the children, don't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's what I, I focus a lot on in, in the book is I kind of break down what uh, family values and how we've kind of looked at what it takes to raise uh, sound children. And you're right, I mean, I think cultures change over time, over generations, and children are our future. So what can we do now to be raising our children in a way that's going to support their optimal development? And that's what, when I talk about family values, I'm not here to impose my religious beliefs or lack of religious beliefs or my, you know, specific values on anyone in particular. What what I'm saying is when it comes to values, we have to look at what is our goal and what do we need to value in order to reach our goal. If our goal is to raise children in an optimal fashion, meaning that they eventually can become self-sufficient, Uh, contributing members of society, sound character, solid in who they are, have a healthy sense of themselves, self-esteem, have empathy and compassion. If we want all those things, what do we need to do to raise children so that they can be that? And there's two things. One is how do we – we can't protect them from the culture that – You know, we're raising them and we can't, you know, shield their eyes and ears from what they're seeing, whether it's watching a presidential campaign (laughs) and having people, you know, fall to the gutter uh, in their competition with one another. Or we can't, you know, heaven forbid, all all the media and technology that kids are immersed in now. So what I'm saying is we have to know how to raise children who are resilient. So all of that, and that goes back to sound character and teaching them to have kind of an inner navigation system, so that they're not looking to the outside world for what do we do, what is right, what is wrong. And
1: um, I, I want to interrupt you yeah. here because uh, you know, Michelle, mm-hmm. it's that. I mean, that I agree with you, and it sounds good. But the problem is, who's doing the teaching, the parenting? I mean, you're talking about. Right. Words. I don't mean to get back into politics necessarily, mm-hmm. but you have a lot of people, a lot of parents who are teaching mm-hmm. divisiveness, divisiveness, exactly. uh, hatred, uh, teaching children to, uh, and, and sort of labeling it as family values, which I'm not, that's another issue, like what we define right. as family mm-hmm. values, like hating people mm-hmm. who don't look like you or sound like you or have different color skin or a different religion. Um, so how can we accomplish that if we ourselves or uh, are Mm -hmm. are not, um, Mm -hmm. necessarily people with
3: family values in the good sense? Right. Right. So it does begin with us as parents (laughs) and as the adults in our society. It, It really does. We do have to step up and rise to the occasion And I'm hoping that by having this new conversation that people will kind of start to wake up and understand through awareness how it is that we're impacting our children without even realizing it. um, So, you know, just like going green or being smoke-free, it all began with kind of an awareness of the negative impact. Uh, these things are having either on our environment or on our physical bodies and that awareness, then we start having new conversations that can kind of take hold and start to shift our values. And that's what I'm hoping here is that parents can start to see that how we are being, is this really the way that we want our children to develop? And are we being kind of the best people that we can be? I think and starting still, the conversation uh-huh. is really, starting the
1: conversation is critical, as you say. You have to begin some kind of dialogue, some kind of conversation, mm-hmm. and then go from there to, as you say in your book, I mean, to promote these humanistic values and, and integrity. Yeah. Although I think integrity—that's a—I was had a guest on a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about integrity. Has really gone down the tubes. People just make up stories. Not just Donald Trump, but just I think generally speaking, because we have the ability to do that, um, mm-hmm. and we have you know the access to technology. Technology it mm-hmm. allows us to do that, and uh, we've. I'm not quite sure how to. I guess we have to have the conversation mm-hmm. about the consequences of not having integrity, which is what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Which is yeah, which is critical. But
3: uh mm-hmm. yeah. We've kind of we've gotten off track, and one of the ways that I also uh, tie this in with you know kind of our, our founding principles is this notion of the pursuit of happiness. We've come to associate that with um, you know kind of. Bank accounts, what we own, what we make, <laughs> and that's kind of become our, you know, we've been on this rat race, this pursuit of happiness that's actually taken a wrong turn somewhere. If you go back again to the Greek and Roman political philosophers, to them, the pursuit of happiness meant the capacity to be virtuous, to, to have the freedom to make choices that actually were in other people's best interests and therefore your own. And I think that if we can get back to really what is it that has us feeling good, because I think generally as a culture, we have gotten off track with that. And, you know, we can be divisive and we can be hating on one another, but ultimately that's not... That's not what has us feeling good. Research on happiness shows us it's the you know the the connections that we have with one another that really provide us with a happy and contented life. It's not about divisiveness. Um, Michelle, who and, would you say? Who mm-hmm.
1: would you say is uh, give us examples, for instance, like who virtuous? I'm not sure I know mm-hmm. too many virtuous people, but yeah. let's say there are some out there and some that we can look to
3: as role models. Who would you say those are? Yeah. Well, gosh, you know, that's a really good question. It, it really is an ideal to aspire to. Uh, I mean, obviously, we could look at the Dalai Lama or any kind of, you know, spiritual leaders that, uh, you know, have a lot of profound wisdom to share. But just if we were just to simplify it and ask ourselves, do we feel better when we're in a parking lot and we see somebody going for the spot that we wanted and we get angry and righteous and, you know, just fly off the handle that, you know, how dare they? Or if we, you know, say, you know, you, you know just kind of relax into it and say, okay, well, you can have, you know, choose to, to be gracious and to let them have the spot it actually feels better. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you can get on board with me on that, but I've had the experience where I can make a choice whether I'm going to like want to get my hassles up and, and fight with somebody or just be gracious and want to do a kind deed to somebody else, whether it's smiling at somebody or whether it's, you know, really trying to understand where that person's coming from and just have a sense of compassion and, and let it go. And that's, fundamentally that really kind of sets us, sets us right, so to speak, and just in terms of ourselves, not with, you know, trying to be any, you know, a spiritual person necessarily, but just on the basic level of how we are getting by on a day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, when I do something that's good for my friends or family or just somebody, like you say, in the parking mm-hmm. lot, okay, you can take the space and I'm not going to start screaming at you or give you the finger mm-hmm. or do something really nasty. Uh, and I do feel better. That's true. And I think, you know, when you kind of display those kind of compassionate characteristics, but then it gets to a point sometimes you feel, am I letting people take advantage of me? Should I, you know, stand up for myself? Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, so, and, and, you know, kind of like analyzing
3: that kind of behavior, but um I, I, yeah, I think that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think we can get to second guessing and want to fall back into cynicism and, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, we just have to ask ourselves, what do I personally feel better? Like, you're kind of more in alignment with yourself. And uh, and I do think, and, and again, this is like we're role modeling for our children. Do we want them to be, you know, stressed out and going at each other? you know, throughout life, is that the way to be, or do we want them to kind of fall into this kind of groove, this golden rule groove that really does make a society function much nicer? Well, I think one of the things that you talk about is that,
1: um, you know, and maybe we alluded it to in the the beginning Mm -hmm. of the conversation, but these kind of authoritarian values uh, that we've sort mm-hmm. of gotten into, this rigidity, this fundamentalism. This is the way mm-hmm. it is. This is the way it should be. And that's not mm-hmm. good. I don't think that's not good for people mm-hmm. or in, you know individuals
3: or society. So we need right. to get away Yeah, get away from that. Yeah, um, yeah. and what's been really ironic is um, and I'm starting to talk about this, how there's a breakdown of character both on the left and on the right. And the people who are Many of the people who are, you know, most uh, adamantly resisting Trump are tending to fall into that authoritarian type of outlook, even though that's not what their values really are. That's what they're fighting against. (laughs) And, you know, do you know what I'm saying? You know, it, it, you know, the whole free speech thing with, you know, Berkeley and not letting Ann Coulter speak and. Uh, this kind of extremism that's gone so far left that it's wrapped around to almost being fascist. Yes. Uh, so, without intending to, though, we need to get back to kind of being the values that we most uh, want to represent, but that we most value, and I think we're losing that. In terms of parenting, I go into a great deal about this in the book, and this code of traditional family values has has had this authoritarian model of parenting, and for various reasons I discuss in this book, based on parenting research, which you're probably pretty aware of, that is not the ideal model of parenting. That's not what ends up raising uh, children to be the best them that they can be. Can it's you define
1: traditional traditional family values? What, uh, uh, define that Can I for define us?
3: that? Uh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. It never really has been defined. It They imply kind of the Augie and Harriet nuclear family model of the 50s, which, by the way, was not traditional. It was a blip in history. We really have lived more in extended families. Uh, prior to uh, World War II, then everybody spread to the suburbs with their, you know, their money and their new cars and that type of thing. That happened post-World War II. Prior to that, it was more, you know, farm-based, it was more extended family-based, and for 99% of this time on the planet, we lived in hunter-gatherer society where the ratio of adults to children was actually four to one. So we see, I created think this is this. I, I'm
1: yeah. say this, that is such an important point. I think that is so critical because most people, most Americans, and I make, I'm generalizing, mm-hmm. have no sense mm-hmm. of history. They do not see that this traditional family values, as the Ozzy and Harriet father knows best, was, was just a blip in history. They have no idea what families mm-hmm. were like before World War II, let's say. Um, yes. And so... It, it's kind mm-hmm. of based on this fault, what is it, yeah. just a, it faults, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, yeah.
3: yeah, it's nostalgia for a time when, you know, all seemed well, we were, you know, our economy was strong, we were out of the war, we were kind of, ha- it, it, it became, you know, the era of television, con- uh, advertisers had us scooped up in the palm of their hands, <laughs> you know, bye, 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 happy, 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 all is good. Um, and I mentioned I look at the research in our book, and that actually was not as ideal of a time as we like to remember it to be. Uh, Stephanie Kuntz wrote a book called The Way We Never Were, and she's a family historian, and she has a fa- this is a fabulous book to really look at uh, families historically. But um, So that's one thing that people tend to think of when they think of traditional family values. It's kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling. But what was never really articulated was that the people using family values rhetoric was the religious right, and they were implying kind of a return to patriarchal family values, which includes this authoritarian model of child-rearing. But that wasn't all hunky-dory. Those parts, you know, being in a democracy, we lost a lot of those values because they don't fit in the democracy. It wasn't until the 1970s that a woman could actually apply for credit and, uh, you know, so get independent and self-sufficient. It, you know, back in the day, domestic violence, quote-unquote, was not a thing. It was something that happened behind closed doors. It was nobody else's business. It was not illegal to, you know, bash somebody around. Uh, corporal punishment with children was also acceptable. considered the norm. Yeah, You know, I could go on. But so we've lost a lot of those values. The point is, is that today, families don't look like that anymore. That is not the norm. We've got blended families. We've got single families. We've got mixed-race families. We've got, uh, you know, uh, same-sex marriage families. We've got every kind of family imaginable. Um, And the question becomes, okay, without that framework of, quote, traditional family values, what is it that we need to be doing to create happy homes, what I call healthy souls and well-adjusted children. And that's the conversation that I tend to have, uh, or at least begin, with this book. I, I try to give guidelines about that. And I say, basically, it's not the structure of the family. It boils down to the function of the family. And that. what does that mean? That means the quality of the interpersonal relationships. We know that children need empathic attunement for proper brain development and psychosocial development. And I go into what that means. (laughs) So if we could get back to that. The other point I want to make is I believe we've done a pendulum swing from this authoritarian model of parenting to one where we are permissive. Uh, You know, we want our kids to be our friends. We, you know, might feel guilty because we don't spend enough time with them. We shower them with things. We allow them to have all kinds of technology. You know, we don't limit so, so that. So we've done to, absolutely
1: the opposite. You know, we have only a minute exactly. left. I'm so, <laughs> so engaged in the conversation with you, but I just so I, you know, listeners have to go out and buy the book to hear the rest of it. And mm-hmm. um, but I, so, but I want to mention the book your your book one more time, and also. Um, where we can go to get more information, you know, to um, mm-hmm. about the book and about you and about what you're doing.
3: Sure. Yeah, so uh, Saving America's Grace is available on Amazon. And I have a website, uh, Michelle Dean, my name is spelled with two E's, D-E-E-N, uh, Michelle Double L. And, uh, you know, I have some, I have a breakdown of different issues on my website. It's kind of a a work in progress right now, but if you were to go there and send me your email, we can be in touch and and I can keep you abreast to different things that I'm going to be doing along these lines. Um, Yeah, so I just, like I said, I'm just hoping to start a new conversation and start to have people thinking in different ways and become aware of what I call the abnormal norms in our society that has become well, no, that so one, and the
1: abnormal norms in our society. And the yes. title of the book is Saving America's Grace, Rethinking Family <laughs> Values, Moral Politics, and the Culture War. Michelle Dean, thanks so much for being on the show today.
3: Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> thanks for having <laughs> me. It's a delight.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.